Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today I have an interview with Dr. Albert L. Hurtado. Dr. Hurtado is a retired professor um, and held the Paul H. and Doris Easton Travis Chair of Modern History at the University of Oklahoma. He's the author of many books, and we will cover a few of them in today's conversation. The conversation will focus around indigenous history in California, uh, the transition between the Spanish and the American period, as well as uh, his amazing biography of John Sutter. This is a wonderful conversation and one I looked forward to for a long time and I know you will enjoy. So let's go meet Dr. Albert L. Hurtado. Your books have made a big impact on me and in thinking and learning about kind of this transition period in California history, it is an amazing uh, kind of cataclysmic intersection of all of these different cultures trying to navigate together. And one of the things that I want to start by talking about is uh, from your book, Intimate Frontiers, um, and talking about um, how gender and sexuality uh, was transformed um, over the course of, I, I would say, 150 years as the mm -hmm. Spanish uh, really started to arrive in larger numbers. And then obviously during the gold rush, um, when uh, not just people from the eastern part of the United States, but people from all over the world arrived. And you have this eclectic group of people that are trying to create new social conventions. And then ultimately, it just creates uh, kind of a, you know, uh, an experimental melting pot of different things. But I want to focus on uh, Native people who are kind of on the recipients of this um, and are trying to figure out how to navigate in these new social spaces that are being created. Um, so how would you characterize uh, some of the changes uh, around gender and sexuality that uh, occurred within Native communities during these transitions? Well, sure. Uh, first of all, when uh, uh, the Franciscan missionaries arrived, they were uh, interested in uh, transforming uh, Native American culture uh, to make it conform with uh, Hispanic Catholic culture. And there were a lot of things that, um, that as far as the priests were concerned that needed to change. Uh, first of all, just the fact that um, California Indians didn't wear much in the way of, of clothing, especially the people on the coast, the salubrious climate at all, uh, just made uh, clothing not very necessary. And so, uh, uh, priests were appalled at this, and the first thing they wanted to do is get them clothed. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, homosexuality uh, was, uh, was uh, accepted in Native American society. This was uh, anathema to uh, the priests who um, were trying to convert them to Catholicism, so they extirpated um, the uh, cross-dressing men who uh, they encountered. Uh, and this was all very shocking to Native American people because this was a form of behavior that was uh, well accepted. And uh, uh, Indian men took uh, homosexual uh, men as wives 
This is not the, the thought of any as anything uh, strange or different. Uh, sometimes they had polygamous uh, or uh, polygamous unions. Uh, they had uh, female wives as well, and uh, so they were quite, uh, uh, shall we say, broad-minded on this score. We've got um, many accounts of priests being shocked at this, and uh, the. Uh, Native American uh, Burdash is the term that's usually termed cross-dressing Indian men. Uh, they're often punished uh, for because of their behavior. So that's one thing. Um, uh, dressing, uh, forcing people to wear uh, clothing that uh, conform to Hispanic standards, uh, that sort of thing. And then uh, just the uh, roles that people took on. Uh, men were supposed to be farmers, whereas in Native American culture in California, women uh, gathered plant foods for the most part. And, uh, Indian men hunted. Hunting was seen as uh, almost a pastime to uh, Europeans. And so, uh, you know, they wanted to convert Indian men into this mode of um, agricultural labor uh, so uh, there are many things that uh, the uh, uh, Spanish wanted to change in Native American society. Uh, and Indian people found this to be uh, quite, quite shocking and uh, a real change from what they had been used to doing. Yeah. And I, one of the things that you bring out in your books that's so interesting is uh, kind of this contrast between, um, you know, the way that uh, the Spanish culture tried to bring in Native people um, mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, if we think about uh, the intermarriage that happened uh, in both, you know, in all parts of Mexico and, you know, these, uh, the costas, the different uh, breakdowns, but really at the core of that, <clears throat> you know, we kind of look at it in a certain way. Um, from a modern lens, but it also shows this kind of sense of like uh, em embracing uh, Native people in, in marriage, but also bringing them into a culture. Is that, how should we look at that compared to the way the Native people were uh, encountered by uh, the later uh, American explorers and uh, people coming in the gold rush? Well, uh, however much we may criticize uh, the Hispanic approach to uh, Native American relations, they at least wanted to integrate them into the greater Spanish society. They weren't being integrated on the very best of terms. Uh, they were basically the, uh, the laboring class uh, and they were abused in many different ways, but they were expected to join into uh, uh, Hispanic and then later Mexican culture. Uh, and um, to a large extent, uh, they did. Now in California, the Hispanic period, or the, the first the Spanish and then the Mexican periods are actually quite brief. Uh, it lasts only for about 80 years. And so um, the, um, you know, it's not like Mexico where, you know, you have hundreds of years of these interactions. You have a couple of generations of interactions in California. And then all of a sudden there's a whole new uh, society with a new cu culture that takes over. 
uh, and uh, a whole new set of ideas and a new language to adjust to and new laws and, and so forth. Uh, Indians uh, were often abused under both Spanish and Mexican law, but under Spanish and Mexican law, Indians were in fact uh, protected uh, by the law, or at least theoretically they were protected by the law. Um, and so uh, there were some uh, advantages to uh, being introduced to European culture uh, under the Spanish system, as I say, there are a lot of abuses of Spanish and Mexican law, but at least the laws were there. And it, it, a lot of it has to do, right, with uh, conversion, um, because when they're converted and brought into the Catholic community, uh, they have a different kind of relationship um, than someone that's not part of the community. And so do you see Catholicism as, you know, this kind of evangelism uh, or spreading of the religion as a kind of a partial explanation why uh, Native people were so readily accepted into the Spanish community? Oh, sure. Uh, you can go back to the first days of uh, Spanish colonization in the uh, 15th, 16th centuries, and uh, um, the church was always interested in uh, bringing Indians into the church and treating them as uh, citizens. And uh, they uh, uh, had a lot to say with uh, the, um, the laws that were meant to protect the Indians that were uh, established early on under the Spanish Empire. And I bring that up because that's kind of um, maybe one of the ironies here because we talk, we've talked a lot about, you know, the kind of the legacy of the mission system um, in, uh, you know, a lot of the harms that it did um, in the history of California, but at the same time, religion kind of served a role to ameliorate some of these more negative things when you can, when you contrast it with kind of the more secular capitalist um, bulldozer that came just, you know, a few decades after. Yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, I mean, Indians weren't asking for this uh, experience of, uh, of uh, missionization and, and conversion to, to Christianity. And, and um, priests believed in uh, corporal punishment as a means of uh, instilling discipline in uh, uh, Indians. There, there was not a history of corporal punishment in Indian society, so they just thought they were being abused. Uh, priests did not intend to import uh, diseases uh, that were new to this part of the country and that Indians had no exposure to previously, but they did. <coughs> and inadvertently, uh, the missions uh, caused um, a great decline in Native American population. So, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you balance all this out and say, well, this, you know, this is better than something else. Uh, it, 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 not as far as all Indians were concerned. Some Indians uh, did stay in the mission uh, voluntarily, uh, especially Indians who were born into the mission, um, but others rebelled, uh, ran away, 
began attacking first the missions and then the uh, private uh, Mexican ranchos that followed. Uh, generally, they stole livestock and drove it out into the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys. And uh, uh, there they uh, constituted quite a threat to uh, uh, Hispanic society out on, on the coast. Uh, and this is in part a, a reaction to and a re rebellion against uh, the um, treatment that they received in the missions. I, I, I want to bring up something that um, you talked about in another one of your books, uh, Indian Survival on the California Frontier. Um, and just talk about this concept of uh, tragedy or this concept of kind of helpless victims that often um, often is the way these stories are told, even to today. Um, there's been a lot of great books that have recently described uh, native power um, and have contrasted with these stories. But if you look in the average textbook, it's still kind of uh, the narrative still follows this kind of similar schema of uh, this aggressive push westward and uh, native people being run over. Um, and you talk a lot about survival. And so why is it important to talk about survival as well? Yeah, I wanted to uh, talk about survival uh, to, to, to change the narrative. Um, uh, now, you know, recently, uh, Brendan Lindsay has written a fine book uh, that uh, emphasizes genocide and, and uh, so has uh, uh, Ben Madley. Uh, who has written a book called uh, um, An American Genocide on California Indian History. Um, well, you know, this, these are both fine books and, and I think they shine a, a light on uh, the issue of genocide uh, as I did not. Um, but I was reacting against the narrative of helpless Indians uh, who uh, were uh, simply uh, uh, rolled over, as you said, uh, you know, killed, enslaved, uh, and, and basically destroyed. When I was a kid growing up in Sacramento, I remember reading articles in uh, the Sacramento Bee, uh, two or three of them, oddly enough, that said, last Maidu Indian dies. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth than, than a headline like that. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, uh, part of the, the narrative that the, the Indians of California are essentially extinct uh, when uh, they're uh, very much nowadays alive and, and well, they survived somehow this terrible period when they were being attacked uh, and they had uh, a few ways to actually protect themselves, few rights under the law, little protection from the federal government. Uh, and uh, I wanted to look at uh, what Indians did for themselves to survive this tumultuous period. So it's a different, it's a different take on it. And, um, and I think um, one, what I wanted to do was to cast Indians essentially as ordinary people trying to go about their lives uh, and um, 
and and to see this you know horde of people coming at them uh, and and then seeing how they adjusted uh, to these uh, these radically changed circumstances. Yeah, and I you know I I think that I understand the reason and having talked with Lynn's Dr. Lindsay and talked with him about um, why it's important to tell the story. You know, I, I think the average Californian doesn't know that history that followed mm-hmm. around the gold rush where there was just this dramatic reduction. Yeah. And so I think it's an important story to tell, but I also think if you only tell that story, it creates a certain mentality around um, mm-hmm. uh, autonomy a certain mentality around a lack of empowerment. Yeah. Um, can you talk about some of the ways that Native people were able to survive in spite of all of these giant obstacles? Essentially, they survived by going to work. Uh, they became uh, an essential part of California's uh, labor force, uh, agricultural labor force. They also worked both as independent uh, miners and uh, also as employees or serfs, really, uh, for uh, Mexican rancheros who uh, brought them in from the coast uh, during the gold rush. They learned how to mine gold and, and uh, enrich their em- employers. Uh, but the answer really is is labor. They found things to do. Uh, they worked in agriculture. They worked in uh, the woods. They were uh, lumbermen, uh, or lumberjacks, I should say, uh, and uh, have been working ever since. They became uh, cowboys, vaqueros, um, some of the essential um, works, by the way, on, on the California vaquero tradition are written by a man who is California Indian heritage. And, uh, uh, that's something that goes unrecognized in uh, uh, the uh, cowboy tradition here in, in California, but it's certainly a fact. Yeah, and I think people, you know, I've talked about this in previous conversations about how people get an image of uh, Indian and then they think of a certain thing, but it's a timestamp and integration means change and they're especially because they're integrating in a capitalist system that changes so violently so quickly uh, that can just have a huge impact on identity Um, you've talked about the impact on family structure maybe touch on that for a few moments on how how uh, the integration in the large-scale agriculture that followed the gold rush uh, changed native uh, family structure in such a way that it you know precipitated this huge decrease in population well, um, the decrease in population was due um, in part to disease, uh, in part to homicide, genocide, if you will, uh, and in part to social dislocation. That is the, the simply the, uh, well, first of all, the uh, assault on Indian societies uh, that was accompanied by this reduction in Indian population and the scattering of people 
because they had to go out to work as migrant workers made it difficult to maintain the kind of social structures that existed, say, in 1750. Uh, and so there, there was a there was not a destruction of Indian society, but a reorganization of it. Uh, Indians were still Indians; they kept up what uh, traditions they could, uh, but um, they often had to uh, move out to various different ranchos to live and to work. They followed seasonal migratory crop harvesting patterns and that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, it, was a, it was a major, um, a major overhaul of, of the, the way that they, they lived. So the, the native family structure didn't, didn't adapt in maybe the same way that individuals adapted to the economic system. Well, I think they adapt uh, in, in that uh, the uh, extended family. I mean, you, would, you were living, if you were living in an Indian community or in uh, the 1750s, you were, <clears throat> there were, pardon me, you were probably living in a uh, <clears throat> community of several hundred people to whom you were related in one way or another, either by direct biological relationship or through some kind of fictive relationship. Well, I wouldn't say it wasn't as successful, but um, instead of living with this one large group, extended families uh, who are related in one way or another, <clears throat> um, the, these larger communities had to break up into smaller groups uh, and, and move to uh, different places to find, you know, a, a livelihood. Now, that wasn't always true. I mean, there were a few reservations in California, Round Valley, for example, and Hoopa Valley, where uh, Indians could continue to live in a, um, a communal uh, life, although even from there, like Round Valley, for example, um, uh, the uh, Indians were left Round Valley Reservation to go out and do seasonal agricultural work. Uh, so uh, the you know the 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 impact of the, the capitalist system, if you will, uh, was to you know disintegrate these uh, communities um, and um, you know put them out of the workforce as individual um, laborers. But again, uh, it, it, they, they, they rejoined up uh, when, uh, when the season of labor was over. And often they traveled as groups, uh, a part of this, these larger communities uh, that they, they lived in. So uh, it's, uh, it's not a complete disintegration of their culture by any means. And, you know, an interesting parallel that I, I've thought about a lot is uh, kind of a similar situation that is going on in India with the Adivasi, where they're living on kind of the exterior in these uh, woodlands um, and more and more of the territory that uh, they called home, that they were adapted to, uh, that they had, uh, you know, built, built a system around uh, as being taken because it's valuable land yeah. um, and then pushed to 
places where it is harder to uh, sustain yourself and have a subsistence lifestyle or a subsistence economy. And um, can we talk a little bit about uh, legal structures? So there were some major changes uh, that happened from the Spanish period uh, to uh, the American period in California's history. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, the change in legal structures had an effect on Native people? Sure. Um, under the American system, that is the U.S. system, uh, the Indians were dealt with as, as tribes. And uh, theoretically, well, I won't say theoretically, but in law, in, in uh, federal law, uh, before Indian lands could be taken, they, uh, they, uh, the federal government made treaties with those Indians and uh, reserved lands to them in exchange for them ceding other lands. Uh, and that was attempted in California in 1851. Uh, 18 treaties were made, but the U.S. Senate uh, failed to ratify them. And they did not ratify, that is the Senate did not ratify those treaties because uh, the state of California objected. And so what should have happened uh, was the, uh, for the federal government to come back to the uh, Indian tribes and say, hey, look, uh, you know, the great father in Washington we were talking about, he has a bunch of uncles that meet in this Senate thing. Uh, and they don't like these treaties, so we have to negotiate new ones. Um, but they didn't do that. And I have never found a record, actually, of um, a federal Indian agent sitting down with Indians and saying, oh, by the way, those treaties we negotiated on those reservations, uh, they're no good anymore. Uh, instead, they came up with uh, what was called a temporary reservation system, where Indians didn't have any rights to the land at all. Uh, they, uh, the federal government set aside on a temporary basis, military reservations where Indians could live and they were supposed to be self-sustaining. That is Indians had to raise all the food uh, that um, they needed. And so uh, the idea was uh, there would be a few of these reservations and that the Indians would come down to those reservations and live there. And if they didn't, well, that, that, they, that was just too bad. They, if they'd starve or they could work for somebody or whatever. But uh, the, the federal government uh, made no attempt to, um, to try to feed them or uh, to protect them, or few attempts, I should say. Um, those, that reservation system, such as it was, lasted into the 1860s uh, when that, uh, uh, that idea of temporary reservations was, was abandoned. Uh, and after that, there were a few um, reservations that were set aside by executive order and they're still in existence. Uh, Hoopa Valley and uh, Round Valley and Thule River um, uh, are the, uh, the ones that were set aside in that way. 
but they never uh, were able to take in all of the Indians in California. So most of the Indians were uh, out living as best they could, working on ranches and in the woods and doing whatever they could to uh, survive. Then in the, around the turn of the century, in the early 20th century, uh, in order to try to take care of those Indians who were not on the reservations, a <coughs> law was passed in Congress to purchase lands for landless Indians in California. And these became what were known as rancherias. Um, and uh, there were several of them in the, our general vicinity, the Wilton Rancheria, for example. Uh, there was one up in uh, Auburn and uh, another up in Jackson. And, you know, they were just scattered around. They, they had um, um, a few dozen families who lived on them. Uh, and uh, so the, those uh, were under federal management as well. But even with those, uh, most Indians didn't live on reservations or rancherias in California. And that was just kind of more symbolic thing, because most had integrated in society in different ways by this point, correct? Uh, no, uh, if I'm not sure what you mean, symbolic. Well, um, I guess if you're creating reservations, but there's only a few families living on them, that they're not really serving a larger purpose for a bigger group of people? Um, like the, the reservation model not making sense for California necessarily? Well, actually the rancherias are very important for a couple of reasons. Okay. First of all, they're only, they're only uh, on a, a given rancheria, maybe a few dozen families, but that doesn't mean that others, relatives, and, didn't come in and, and make some use of that uh, as temporary residences from time to time. And it, it helped make the community cohesive again. Uh, and they, that has had uh, an important effect uh, on ongoing. Eventually, the rancherias were disestablished in the 1950s and 60s. But uh, in the last 20 years, uh, the Indians who were associated with those rancherias have been re-recognized by the federal government. And, and so they um, have uh, the, the rights and privileges that uh, uh, are accorded to all tribes under federal Indian law. There's still a lot of California Indian tribes that are not recognized. And importantly, to me at least, and to them, uh, the Southern Sierra Miwok. Uh, I'm, I'm working for the Southern Sierra Miwok to try to get the federal government to recognize uh, them as a tribe, as they, well they should be. It's a, it's a travesty that they haven't been recognized uh, as yet. So we're hoping for better things in the future here, but it's been a long haul for them. But one of the reasons they're not recognized because they weren't given uh, a rancheria back in the 19 teens, 20s, uh, because uh, the, the uh, federal administrators went up there and looked around and said, well, these, these guys are doing pretty good. Some of them are living here in a village in uh, Yosemite National Park and they're doing okay. 
Others are uh, living here in uh, the town of Mariposa and uh, they've got jobs doing this and that here. And so, you know, they're, they didn't, uh, they weren't poor enough. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so that was a, that bit established a legal precedent that then could be used if you had a rancheria. Exactly. Oh, I see. Exactly. I see. Interesting. <laughs> That's a, a sad irony uh, right there. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about a little bit, uh, uh, we're going to transition and talk about Sutter for a little bit. I really enjoyed, uh, your biography of him and in part because, um, it, you know, it wasn't hagiography and it was also not, uh, just, a, a you know, a catalog of sins of, <laughs> of yeah. someone from a different time. It was like, it was both. Um, and I think those are for me, uh, my favorite bi- biographies. When I get a picture of someone that's holistic, um, and doesn't gloss over anything. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the myth of John Sutter? Um, I, as a kid, I I remember a field trip to Sacramento to go to Sutter's Mill, um, and I I didn't, I, you know, and this could just be developmentally with kids. You know, you're you're not wanting to go down go down Murder Road uh, right. just yet, um, but it is but it is something that stays with you. Um, when you teach something uh, early, um, those ideas tend to stay with you. Um, so maybe just talk about how we'll talk about the myth of him, and then we'll talk about the actual person. Yeah, the um, uh, the myth of Saturn, and of course, is I'll call it a myth. There, there is some truth, a lot of truth, and to the standard version of of Sutter that was told to me at Sutter's Fort when I started going there. And uh, uh, I, I, I went there first time before I was five years old. And uh, as uh, luck would have it, uh, we went to church across the street at the first Pioneer Congregational Church. And the church stuff didn't stick very much, but uh, I did go to church because I wanted to go to Sutter's Fort afterwards. And I, my parents always had to promise to take me there if they could at all. So I spent a lot of time. I grew up around Sutter's Fort and the, the Sutter, the Sutter myth. So the Sutter myth is that, you know, here's this uh, um, uh, forward thinking uh, pioneer who sees the possibilities of the development of the Sacramento Valley. And he, um, creates this center where uh, the uh, Overland pioneers could come and gather, and he protected them, helped them get them a start, and and uh, he saved the Donner Party or tried to, and helped a lot anyhow. And um, and then uh, he discovered gold and golly, uh, what an irony that was! Because uh, then all these. Uh, 49ers came in and a lot of squatters came in and squatted on his land and they stole everything from him. And he became a victim of his uh, own success because of his, you know, great kindness and so on and so forth. Well, the, the author of the Sutter myth is Sutter himself. Uh, he made himself the hero of his uh, own biography as, as uh, I guess any of us would. Uh, but uh, the the unvarnished story of uh, Sutter is uh, is of a man who was out to grab what he could for himself. He saw certain opportunities 
He, he noticed first in uh, Missouri, he's from Switzerland, of course, I won't try to reiterate his entire biography here, but uh, he first uh, uh, moved to Missouri when he, he came here from Switzerland. Uh, and uh, there he happened to uh, uh, arrive at just uh, the, the moment when they were finally settling uh, land claims from the Spanish and French periods. And he noticed, gosh, they're, they're approving these huge Spanish and Mexican, or pardon me, and French grants of land that had made, been made to these people. If you can get one of those and you can wait it out, uh, you'll be a very rich man. So that was one of the things that motivated him. Uh, when he came to California. And sure enough, the first thing he did is become a Mexican citizen, which only took a year. And then he, uh, he acquired uh, a grant of land of uh, about 48,000 acres. Um, now, as I've corner, he's a land speculator in some ways, right? He is a land speculator. There's no, no question about it. And so were a lot of other Americans who were coming. They knew that you could get 48,000 acres of land for nothing but, you know, uh, a small fee and, uh, uh, you know, taking the little bit of time you needed to uh, uh, establish citizenship. Uh, so <clears throat> he, he, was, he was looking at the, the possibilities for uh, uh, acquiring great wealth that uh, in in the uh, in a relatively short period of time, he didn't know that uh, uh, the United States was going to take over. He was pretty sure that France or Great Britain would be more likely to take over uh, California. So he embellishes his story, by the way, to to say that it, he was a you know great. Uh, great uh, promoter of the American cause and so forth. Well, not really. Not until it was obvious who was gonna win. Uh, then he became a great promoter of uh, the uh, United States and the American cause during the Mexican-American War, but not before. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's funny to contrast this. I just recorded an interview about uh, kind of the legacy of uh, Charles Fremont and just this kind of uh, self-invention uh, seems very characteristic of a lot of these Western stories, yeah. um, in part because they're trying to sell uh, something that benefits them, but they're also trying to sell a vision of their impact that's uh, so apart from the rest of uh, the United States that they can kind of get away with a lot of license. Yeah. Yeah. So um, can we uh, conclude today by talking uh, about book recommendations? Uh, oh, one of my favorite uh, parts of these conversations, because uh, I'm always encouraging listeners to start with this, but then go to your books. Um, so can you uh, share a little bit of, um, it can be really anything or along some of the topics that we've talked about. I know you've already mentioned quite a few, but um, uh, stuff to help people uh, learn, uh, get into these topics in deeper ways um, and explore uh, Western history. Well, you know, on, on uh, California Indians, um, I'd like to recommend, uh, in addition to uh, Brendan Lindsay and, and Ben Madley's books, excuse me, 
Damon Akins and uh, William Bowers. So we are the land, the history of native California. Uh, recent book, um, uh, Willie, uh, William Bauer is uh, a, an enrolled Indian at the Round Valley Reservation. Uh, uh, Adkins is, is not an Indian, but uh, they're both students of mine at the University of, of Oklahoma. Uh, and I think they've written a very perceptive book about uh, the history of California from a Native American perspective, something that we we haven't had. Um, uh, and in addition to all of that on, on California Indians, I think the works of George Harwood Phillips uh, are important. Um, in a general way, um, there, there's a huge um, bibliography of Californiana. Um, it's the history of California is probably with the exceptions, probably uh, possible exceptions of New York and Virginia, probably got the, 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 the largest bibliography uh, of history of, of any state in, in the nation, partly because of the gold rush. So uh, this doesn't begin to do justice to it, but <clears throat> I would certainly recommend the works of Kevin Starr um, who <clears throat> began with his uh, Americans and the California Dream uh, and then wrote many more volumes, several more volumes, uh, along the same vein, investigating various uh, aspects of, of California history. And I, I think his uh, work uh, really stands the test of time, will stand the test of time. I like the works of William Deverell. Um, especially whitewashed adobe, uh, the rise of Los Angeles and the remaking of uh, uh, its Mexican past. Um, I think that's a, a significant book. Uh, and along the similar lines, uh, Gray Bresson's uh, <clears throat> Imperial San Francisco, Urban Power and Earthly Ruin. Um, so there's a, a lot that's been done on women's history in California in the last uh, decade or two. Um, I'll just mention the works of Joanne Levy, L-E-V-Y, um, especially They Saw the Elephant, uh, which is uh, her uh, take on uh, uh, women's history during the, during the gold rush. So those are just a few. Well, I appreciate you doing this. This has been a lot of fun for me and your books are really important for me and formative for how I think about these early periods. So I, I, I appreciate the work you've done and for talking with me today. Well, it was uh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Hurtado. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.